Well, can I add my welcome? It's just a a joy to see you all and uh, to have you back in this room and the promise of heading towards a day when we can gather without masks and social distancing and sing. I think that's what I'm looking forward to particularly. But let's just pray and ask that God will speak to us through his word. Father, thank you that we have your word in our hands And yet as we read these words, we see that in many ways they're profoundly disturbing. And yet, and yet, we see that you are showing your great love to us. And this is a glorious moment of salvation. Oh Lord, not many can see this. And so, Father, we, grant that, we ask that you'd grant all of us to be able to see and understand these events truly and to personally trust all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus. Please help me now as I seek to preach this portion of your word. Uh, help each one listening that our hearts may be open to your very voice. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, some words can change your life forever. It was 29 years and one week ago before a crowd of witnesses, I heard Shiona say, I will. And those words have changed my life in lots of wonderful ways ever since. Now, the Bible is full of life-changing words like that. But I want to just suggest that there are two pronouncements that are quite possibly the most life-transforming words in the Bible. You ready for them? These are the two most transforming words. They are, it is finished and he has risen. It is finished and he has risen. It relates to the crucifixion of Jesus and his death and his resurrection from the dead. Now, if you will personally trust those words, your life will be changed forever. These are the two central truths of the Christian faith. And I want us to uh, consider this week the crucifixion of Jesus and next week, amazingly on Easter Sunday, we're going to consider the resurrection of Jesus. And so, um, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, please open it back up to uh, Mark chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, open it back up to Mark chapter 15. And as you look it up, can I ask you to consider this question? What do you see? What do you see in the crucifixion of Jesus? I mean, these... There are reminders of this historical event all around us today. I mean, what do you think about when you see the cross? Some see a kind of a corporate logo. You know, I remember when our children were young, they could spot the golden arches from 10 miles away and couldn't wait to get the Happy Meal because the golden arches meant McDonald's. And some people kind of see the cross as like a corporate logo of the church. That's what it is. That's all that's, it means it's the church. I mean, there's one on the spire above this very building. Others see it as a superstitious symbol. I don't know whether you've noticed this, but the number of sports people. Um, uh, I, I was watching a 
football game of the day and a guy was running on the pitch. He got down, touched the grass, and then he crossed himself. Very odd, really. Uh, not quite sure what he was enacting by doing that, but some people sort of see it as some sort of superstitious symbol. Uh, for others, it's a fashion statement. Pop stars uh, with necklaces, uh, uh, along with other bling, will have a cross there. A friend overheard a woman in a jewelry shop asking this question, can I have one of those golden crosses with the little person on it? Hadn't got a clue what it was about. But if that's all we're seeing, we're not understanding the absolutely central part of the Christian faith. So what do you see in the death of Jesus? What do you see in his cross? It is clearly, it was a horrible and ugly way to die. Cicero, the Roman uh, statesman, and lawyer who died in 43 BC, he described crucifixion as the most horrifying punishment, most horrifying and cruel punishment. It was used by the Roman Empire to terrify its subjects, making clear who was in charge. And undoubtedly, the scene that Mark recounts here reminds us of how depraved our human hearts can be that we can treat people like this. The possession of power, contempt, misuse, and abuse of other people. Mockery so easily can turn into violence. We saw it in the way that Iraqi prisoners were treated by American soldiers in the Abu Ghraib prison in 2004. And events like that, and I could give lots of modern illustrations unfortunately, remind us that humanity has not changed that much from the first century uh, and what we read here in Mark's account. The dodgy trial, the irrational hate, the vicious whipping and scourging, the, the mockery, the spitting, and finally the nailing of Jesus's bloody and torn body, nailed naked to a, a cross of wood, hoisted up into the air as a public, public spectacle of shame. It was a public statement to anyone who wanted to mess with the Roman Empire. All this is evidence of the malevolent potential in our sinful hearts. So yeah, we do see that as we look at these events. But I want us to focus this morning particularly on verses 33 to 39 in Mark chapter 15. Because Mark records two signs two cries and two responses and it divides into two parts in verses 33 to 36 we see a sign a cry and a response that speak of how Jesus was forsaken and then in verse verses 37 to 39 we see a cry a sign and a response that show that through Jesus, we can be forgiven. So the first half forsaken, second half forgiven. That's what we're going to consider this morning. You see, Mark tells this account in such a way that he wants us to see that in this awful event, God was actually reconciling sinful people back to himself 
through his son, Jesus the Messiah. Now I want to show that to you. It needs some explanation. It needs some insight to grasp it, I think. There were lots of times in the life of Jesus where he looked like the powerful son of God. When he was stilling the storm with words. When he raised the dead. When he healed the sick. When he, well, at those times he looked like the powerful son of God. But now, as he is being crucified, bloodied, stripped, nailed to a cross like a criminal... Well, at this point, he just looks forsaken by God. Consider the sign. The significance of the darkness in verse 33. Look at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. The way they recorded time, the sixth hour was midday. When the sun would have been usually at its brightest But suddenly darkness from noon to 3 p.m. Now this event cannot be explained uh, as a solar eclipse. This was a supernatural event. Now to God-fearing Jews, darkness was a sign of God's anger. Just like the darkness that God sent to judge Pharaoh when he refused to release the, uh, the, the nation from slavery in the time of Exodus. The darkness was a sign of God's anger. We often think of anger as something irrational, as uh, unpredictable, but God is, 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 God's anger is totally different to that. It is his controlled and invariably hostile um, response towards all that is wrong. Now, I think it is easy for us to be cavalier about certain things that are wrong. So, We might say to ourselves, well, it's okay for me to speed along uh, this road. Or um, it's okay for me to drive fast if I've had a few drinks. Um, It's not wrongdoing, we reason to ourselves. It's, It's a question of knowing your limits. But of course, if a drunk driver crashes his car, killing a friend or a relative of yours, then... This is a subject that you're going to have very strong views about. When wrongdoing affects you personally, it's a lot harder to treat sin as if it's harmless. And God sees all our wrongdoing as offensive and takes it personally. He sees all our sin. He he, he takes it as a personal offense against him. As an act of rebellion against him. And because he's just and holy, he must punish sin. And that is what is going on in this darkness covering the land. During those three hours, the evil and sinful thoughts and words and actions of millions of lives down through history were being counted against Jesus. Jesus was dying in the place of sinners. God's just anger against sin was poured out on his son. His precious son willingly went to the cross in our place. Now we can barely imagine the horror of what, it, what this meant for Jesus far worse than the physical pain he experienced. And we just get 
a picture of it in his first cry in verse 34. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we saw a few weeks ago the incredible way that Jesus referred to God as his father. The most familiar and uh, loving of words as a child calls out to daddy. Jesus says, when you pray, call him Abba, Father, Daddy. But on the cross, the sinless Son of God experienced something new. The absence of God's love and commendation. And instead, the curse of God and his condemnation. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 in a loud voice, this cry from the cross... An experience of God forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. And this was the price that needed to be paid by Jesus to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that that's what Jesus saw was going on in this event. He spoke of it before. But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what it cost him. You hear it in his cry from the cross. To bear God's wrath in our place. Now that Jesus quoted from Psalm 22 reminds us that these events did not take him by surprise. It was all predicted and prophesied a thousand years before by King David, who wrote this psalm. Now, nothing in David's life actually fits the details of this psalm. These words written long before crucifixion was ever known in Israel. So let me read to you uh, a few of the verses that was read earlier to us by Claire uh, from Psalm 22. And just think about uh, this Psalm again in the light of what we've read in in Mark 15. In verse 6 it says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. How extraordinary this is. Written 1,000 years before the cross of Jesus, they describe the events that took place. The irony of it. Almost in every way that Jesus was mocked as God's king, that very mockery actually proved that he was exactly who he claimed to be. For God had, by his Spirit, through 
King David prophesied that this would take place. Their taunts and behaviors were as scripture predicted. The soldiers' sneers, the inscriptions spoke the truth about Jesus. He was indeed king of the Jews. But what was the response? Well, if you look at verse 35, it is total blindness. Verse 35, when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with vine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Uh, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. Now, Elijah, according to folklore, was the patron saint of lost causes. And these bystanders watched the events with a sort of detached interest, as if someone's watching a reality TV show. Oh, this is interesting. I wonder whether Elijah's going to come. Total blindness to the significance of what was taking place before their eyes. So there's a sign, there's a cry of Jesus. And a response of blindness. Now look at the second half in verses 37 to 39. And see those three elements again. There is a second cry in verse 37. With a loud cry. Jesus breathed his last. Other gospel writers tell us that the last cry was one word. Which we translate into English as it is is finished that was the last cry one word it is finished and then he died having gone through the darkness this last shout from the cross is mission complete and then he dies he had fully endured god's wrath upon our sins the price was paid his work was completed and while mark does not give us the word he recounts a second sign that shows what this death upon the cross accomplished mark writes like a filmmaker he cuts from the final cry of uh, and the death of jesus on the cross to show us inside the temple in Jerusalem. Look at verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now this temple curtain was 30 feet high. It was as thick uh, as a span of a person's hand. And Jesus makes this loud cry. And then in the temple, this massive curtain rips from top downwards. What a strange and incredible sight that would have been. Now, what did that stand for? Well, this curtain was a huge no-entry sign. The temple courts had different areas. The outer court was for Gentiles, then the court for the women, then the men, then the priests. And then the inner area was the Holy of Holies. And there, symbolically, was the place of God's holy presence dwelling amongst his people. And the curtain was a visible way of warning that sinful people dare not approach a holy God. Keep out. It's dangerous for sinners to meet a holy God without dire consequences. And then when Jesus died, the curtain is ripped in two. 
the barrier is removed. Free access is now possible for people who come through the crosswork of Jesus Christ. Just as the destruction of the Berlin Wall in, in 89 symbolized the end of the Cold War, the torn curtain now showed that the hostility between God and man has been reconciled for those who trust Jesus Christ. Do you see, because Jesus was willing to be forsaken and thrust out of the presence of God, we can be forgiven and gain access into the presence of God. Because he was forsaken, we can be forgiven. That's the point that Mark wants to get across. The way is now open to God through the one mediator, Jesus the Messiah. It's amazing. We sometimes talk about the destruction of the temple in AD, as something that happened in AD 70, but spiritually, the day that Jesus died, the day that the temple curtain was torn, was the day that the temple was destroyed. It was rendered obsolete. No more need for animal sacrifices. No more need for blood to be applied. No more need for bringing a sacrifice for sin. No more need for a day of atonement. The sin offering, the atoning sacrifice had been definitively offered in Jesus' self-giving of himself upon the cross. The true fulfillment had come. So what do you see as you look at the cross of Jesus Christ? And what is your response to the cross? There's a number of responses around the cross, aren't there? Uh, there's the soldiers in verses 24. There they are at the central event in salvation history in the world. And what are they focused on? Well, they're gambling over the dying prisoners' clothes. The one main perk of the job. Now that describes many people today. Too busy taking care of business to think about Jesus and his death. Or there's the response of the religious leaders in verses 31 to 32. They, they were too self-satisfied. They were convinced that they had their own way to God and certainly did not need something as shameful as the cross. Or there's the cowardly response of Pilate, the crowd pleaser, as we saw a few weeks ago. Or there's the distant response of the bystander in verse 38, blind to the seriousness of sin, blind to the true significance of Jesus' death. He just observes the whole scene with a detachment and going, oh, what's going to happen next? All these responses will leave us unforgiven before God. His just judgment for our sins is still hanging over us. But there's one last response to the cross, isn't there? And it's the response made by the Roman centurion. And it's the culmination of everything we've read so far. This really is the third miracle of these verses. This tough Roman soldier hardened by executing many people 
sees what no other person has yet affirmed in Mark's gospel. If you look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Now here is the wonder of the cross. The sin-bearing death of Jesus brings about a supernatural miracle of insight, a moment of revelation before blindness, but now sight. And think about it. Who is the one who sees? The very Roman soldier who was there executing Jesus. Here is the lavish nature of God's grace. Here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus came to die for those who gladly put him to death. He came to die for us, for you, for me, while we were still sinners. Amazing grace. And it's good news for the whole world. It was a non-Jewish person who first saw it. This is good news for Gentiles. It's good news for Jewish people. What incredible love God has shown to us. He spared not his own son in order to save us. Have you seen this for yourself? Have you seen it? You must see it for yourself. God's salvation, you see, is not automatic. How do you know when someone has got it? Well, I want to suggest there's two things we see in this section. Firstly, there's confession. Verse 39, just like the Roman centurion. To confess that Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. He is the Son of God. Uh, People who see this confess this of Jesus. Secondly, people who are willing to bear the cross. Cross Cross-bearing. There's a fascinating cameo of Simon of Cyrene, who is a reminder to us of this uh, at the cross and the call of the Messiah that we heard back in Mark chapter 8. Remember what Jesus called to the crowds? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And this is what Simon of Cyrene was required to do. And as my children are fond of saying, literally... He literally had to pick up the cross of Jesus. When you see and know that Jesus died in your place, then the only response is to say, as Isaac Watt put it in his wonderful hymn that we're going to hear in a moment, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands... My life, my soul, my all. So my Christian friends, don't trade Jesus for anything else. Give up everything else but him. Die to self and rejoice to confess his name. And after we've sung, Andy's going to lead us in a time of communion where eating the bread and drinking the cup wonderfully reminds us of these two life-transforming statements. It is finished. He has 
risen. But if you've not understood the cross of Christ up to now, then call on God to have mercy upon you until you see it for yourselves. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to be your Savior and King. And perhaps there's someone right now watching this service, either at home or in the room here, and uh, you know that's exactly what you need to do. And I want to invite you to pray this prayer of response this morning. We'll put it up on the screen. Take a look at it. It's a simple prayer. It's acknowledging that you deserve God's judgment because of your sin. That you're sorry for the ways that you've you've rejected God's love in your life. You're asking him to forgive you. You're thanking him that Jesus died in your place. And it's 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 a request. Please change me so I can live with Jesus in charge as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to pray that right now. And perhaps you might want to join in and make this your prayer by uh, repeating it, whispering it from your heart and mind this morning. Let's pray. Dear God, I deserve your judgment because of my sin. I am sorry for rejecting you. Please forgive me. Thank you, Jesus died in my place. Please change me so I can live with Jesus in charge as my Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, today's been a wonderful day. God has heard your prayer. And if we'd love to help you, so please get in touch. Uh, you can email us at the office if you're here in the room. Speak to me on the way out, and we'd love to connect you with someone that can help you grow in your faith.